right, turn your Bible tonight to somewhere. Let me see if I can figure out where I want you to turn. Um, let's see, just, just pick one. Um, turn to the book of Colossians. Why don't we do that? The book of Colossians. I trust that you are praying right now. Interesting moment in the life of our nation. I think we would all agree with that. Amen. Uh, a lot of insanity out there. Uh, a lot of it uh, coming directly from the church. And so I would just encourage you, as I encouraged you on Sunday, uh, be a Christian before you're an American. Hear from heaven, and heaven will speak. Amen. We're talking about the power of change and the power to change. We're using this as a definition of sanctification. The ongoing process of change in the life of a disciple whereby the holiness, nature, character, and power of Christ can be readily seen. And the inworking and outworking of justification, whereby we become less like our old self and more like the new self being made into the image of Christ. And the last time we were together, I told the story of the candy dish that my very, um, I, I, my very loving but ill mother put out on the coffee table in the living room and said, don't touch this. And we realize that there are things that actually God will put in front of us that he says, don't touch. I mean, he dealt with the first humans on the planet with the don't touch rule, did he not? He put temptation in front of them that they didn't do too well, to say the least. So the pattern was set for us. And yet, it's not God who tempts us. And yet, God will use these very things as, if you wish, points of sanctification to get to something in our life. Whether it is, you know, having the third funnel cake on Sunday. You know, whatever, whatever it might be that's in front of you, that God will use these things. And we talked about the tools of sanctification, that God has given us certain power tools. You can get certain things done without a power tool, but it's a lot easier if it's what? If it's powered. And we talked about some of the tools of sanctification. One is the power of the word. Jesus there being tempted before entering public ministry. What did God say? It is written. There it is. And so one of the very first power tools that we find Jesus himself wielding is the power of this word. Then there is the power of prayer. Be self-controlled and alert, we see in 1 Peter 5. And then the third one was the power of the Spirit himself. But tonight I want to move on beyond that. And I want to talk tonight about don't touch says who? The title of this message is, Don't Touch, Says Who? Colossians, the second chapter. Let's begin in verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. 
Next chapter. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If we really get down into the depths of sanctification, change, there's this presupposition of sanctification that basically inquires what is it that I'm going to have to give up? What can I not do anymore? What am I going to have to stop eating, stop drinking, stop watching, stop doing? And there's a presupposition that comes along with this discussion of change. That somehow this is going to take something from me. It's one of the greatest threats, I believe, to true Christian discipleship. Because we begin to hear a word like change. We can begin the words like sanctification. And immediately we're threatened. Because it's like, what else is God going to take away from me? Come on. Can we just get real honest here? And not only if we feel threatened, those of us who are, quote, in the house, imagine the threat that this becomes in for those that are yet outside coming in. How many of you in your disciple-making endeavors, your, quote, evangelism, you begin to engage with some, oh, you're a Christian. That must mean you don't drink anymore or you don't, you don't get high anymore. You don't do X, Y, and Z. You know what? I'm not interested in giving that stuff up. They immediately jump presuppositionally that they're going to have to give up all of this stuff that has defined their current or their former life. Nod your head vigorously. But they're not asking questions for the most part about eternal destination. They're not asking questions about, well, tell me more about this God. They immediately default to this very discussion, what am I going to have to stop doing? Interesting. And they miss the point entirely. Because you see, it's not all about what you cannot do, but it's that which you can do that will bring you into greater life. It's two sides of the same coin. Sometimes it does mean no. Yet as I don't know about you, but as I grow and I'd like to think I'm not quite as immature as I was 40 years ago when I started walking with Christ, is that I find that as I walk with God now, God is surprisingly telling me no a whole lot less. And as I go and inquire of him, and try to get into God's heart, God's will, God's desire, God's pleasure. Many times, God, can I? He says, absolutely. Yes. It's like, I'm surprised. Because for so much of my life, my motivation for asking was always the wrong motivation. And God was saying, no, 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 no. And so it's become a real surprise. Almost after quite a few decades of, you know, God just keeping me from myself, if that makes any sense, that now God is saying, this is not about what you're going to have to do away with or give over. But the answer is yes. It's fascinating. I'm hearing it a lot more often. And I think that you can too. 
But I want to I want to talk about a couple of things tonight briefly. And the first one I want to talk about what I call superimposed sanctification. What do I mean by that? It means what someone else does that you think you should be doing. <laughs> all right. I got all the answers, Pastor Sean. You just do what I'm doing, you're going to be good. Now, I know Paul wrote, be perfect as I'm perfect. I got all that. Paul was saying, he was setting an example. But somewhere there's a superimposed sanctification that I think can be a bit problematic. Testimonies are great. Books are great. Testimonies. Go to the Christian bookstore if they still exist. I guess they do. Or at least they got little wire racks in the grocery store now. I guess that's where we're down to. And you look at most of the books there, they're not books about theology. Most of them are not even books about God. Most of them are testimony books as to how they have conscripted some principle of God in order to get their life less of a mess than it was before they did such a thing. Are you with me? For the most part, most of what makes up the opus of Christian written literature today, they're books of testimony. They're books of taking a principle to make your life better. I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with those books. I did this. God did this. But here's the problem. It's rarely one size fit all. This is, this is the issue that I, that I want to get down to. You know, and I believe that the intrawebs have not worked with us on this. I believe the access to technology and search engines and we go out and we, this person did this and they did that and they stood on that scripture and they read that book and, you know, they did, they had the position when they pray. I mean, it gets weird out there. It really does. It gets strange. And we think, if I'll just do it that way, I'll be all right. And a lot of believers are clomping around in Saul's armor. Well, this, this worked for him. You know, and we wonder why we can't chunk a rock is that we're trying to wear somebody else's armor that was designed for them. My doctor finally just gave up with me when it came to exercise. I mean, I hit some point in my 50s and he took a look at me. He said, let's not do this. He said, because based on how, what I know about you, you would just go out, you're going to break or sprain something because I don't look like it, but I tend to be very competitive, mostly with myself. So I'm not the kind of guy that's going to start an exercise regimen slowly and wisely. I'm going to go out and have a cardiac event. This is just what I do. My wife can tell you, well, we have a driveway that's about four and a half miles long. It goes uphill. And I get out there and start shoveling snow. I know, foot, foot and a half of snow, uphill. And my, waiting, my wife's just waiting to see if my little body is going to drop in the snow somewhere. Every winter, Pastor Brett's terrified if I'm going to show up for staff meeting from shoveling snow. Don't you have a heart attack on me? Because he's waiting. 
My doctor finally just gave up on the exercise thing. He said, why don't we do this? Just park your car further away from the McDonald's. Just, why don't we just start with that? Don't look for the best parking space. Just park your car further away from the restaurant, and we can get some exercise in that way, all right? At least the man's coming to some reality. But he, rec- he recognizes that if I were to jump in and try to exercise like Pastor Brett, Pastor Brett's not a normal human being when he exercises. He's just, he's not normal. I respect him. I love him, but he's not normal. I've seen where he works out. It's the stuff of nightmares. Let me just tell you, it's the stuff of nightmares in your basement, champ. I'm going to tell you. It's, it is ugly and scary down there. You don't go down there either, do you? All right. But if I tried to do what he does, it would kill me. It would harm me. Do you understand? Now, it works for him, but it would not only not work for me, it would actually harm me. Not just hurt me temporarily, it would harm me. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some things, there are some absolutes in biblical standards, and those standards are clearly articulated. And they're not clouded or shrouded to us. The Ten Commandments don't need much interpretation, nor any individual application. It's pretty simple. Don't kill folk, don't steal stuff. I mean, that kind of transcends generations. Do you understand what I'm saying? It transcends culture, it transcends gender. It trans- Just don't kill folk, don't steal stuff. Okay, you got that? Do I need to define it any further for you? All right. So the Ten Commandments, well, we've got absolutes right there. But then there's the how we interpret not just God's laws, but God's intent. Now we're getting into, now we're getting into the realm of the Holy Ghost. See, it's one thing when you get God's check in the box. But it's another thing, but you're missing my heart. Children. Can I, can I, can I? And they'll, they'll push you until finally they'll wear you down. Now, you've already revealed your heart in the matter. But see, they miss the heart because they won't, they, they, in that moment, they're looking just to circumvent. They're just looking for law. But your hearts, because of your hesitancy, your reluctancy to grant them approval, they're missing the deeper read. And what's going on? Parents, you, you get me here? We do the same thing with God. God's intent. But this is God's intent. It's always for freedom, it says, that Christ has set us free. He says, stand firm and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, Galatians 5.1. But listen to me, saints. My liberty might be your law. And my law is probably not your law. Now, again, please hear the right thing. Don't go away from here tonight and say, Pastor Jim told me I could do anything I wanted to do. No, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But the reality is maybe God's given me liberty to do something that he hasn't given you that same liberty. Likewise, God may have put a requirement on me that if I try to put that requirement on you, it's going to become legalism and the law real fast. Real fast. How I do life is not necessarily how God's called you to do life. Hear me. 
I make jokes about donuts and fried food and all of that kind of stuff, but most of you would be shocked at how I eat. It's a stick. My wife has about got me housebroken on this thing, but more so than my wife is the Holy Spirit. And some folk real close to me who've ever watched me really sit down in a restaurant and eat and order, they realize that I've got dietary requirements that are much stricter than most folk who are a lot skinnier and better looking than I am. And pe- why are you laughing at that? That, <laughs> that is really, really painful. Golly, my own wife did that to me tonight. And they would be shocked at what I don't eat, but not because I've read it out of Prevention Magazine, is that the Holy Spirit's made certain requirements on my life that are unique to my life that not necessarily right for you. Are you, are you hearing something here? And so you say, why you do that? Well, well, maybe I should do that. Maybe the pastor or maybe the prophet of God, maybe there's something in that I should get. No, not at all. Hear from God for yourself, and he'll tell you how to, how to navigate this thing. You've got to figure it out. And we really can't do this in and of ourselves. And if we try, aside from divine guidance, invariably we're going to wind up with some form of legalism. And in many cases, pretty dangerous legalism. Philippians, the second chapter, verses 12 through 13, it says... Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now stay with me because I'm going to upset some of you, but I'll fix it. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to willing to act according to his good purpose. Salvation, work it out. Wait a minute. I thought salvation was the free gift of God. But you see, the problem is how we define salvation. See, in a larger sense, in a larger context, that it's not just an initial moment in time, that alter moment of a moment of decision, but it's an ongoing, overarching work of God in our life. Sanctification, what we're talking about, change, is part of working out your salvation. We're not talking about eternal destination here. We're talking about the manifestation of your discipleship and your sonship and daughtership. This is what working out your salvation is referring to. It's an arc. It begins in one place, a moment in time, but it concludes in another eternity. It starts on earth. It concludes in heaven. Are you with me here? This is that working out that we're talking about. Sanctification is part of that. And it's not just the law. It's not just the list. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 31. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Here we go. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But, 27, here's the clarification. If some believer, unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. 
My wife and I travel to places in the world, and there's some stuff put in front of us that looks back. I don't like food staring at me when I'm eating it. Trust me. And I don't want to taste anything that can taste me back. Do you understand? But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, don't eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for the conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Here we go. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew, Greek, or the church of God. D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon, preachers and theologians of the, of the 19th century, one Brit, one American. C.S. Lewis recounts this story. Now, it's been told so many times, it's, it's, it's practically a fable now, but, but Lewis recounted it, so I'm gonna, I'll just quote Lewis. But it appears that Moody was a large man, 400 pounds. Now, let me just tell you, that's a big boy right there. I mean, regardless of how, but 400 pounds. Spurgeon was known for smoking cigars. He loved cigars. So much, in fact, that there was actually a cigar vendor who actually promoted his product as the same cigars that Spurgeon smoked. He was that popular. And so here's a couple of guys, one with a pretty significant tobacco habit. The other one is 400 pounds. Now, these men were friends. They were in each other's pulpits. They held each other in the highest esteem. But there is a a story that's recounted that Moody went to London to meet Spurgeon. And when Spurgeon answered the door, he had a cigar in his mouth. Moody fell down the stairs in shock. How could you, a man of God, smoke that? And Spurgeon stepped back and says, how can you, a man of God, be that fat? Now, we're not talking about just guys off the street. We're talking about two of the greatest preachers and theologians of the 19th century. Now, at the end of their lives, it was a problem. Spurgeon had to give up cigars because it wrecked his health. And obviously, Moody had health problems as well. I'm not advocating you go smoke cigars and bathe 400 pounds. Hear the right thing. But for one man, his conscience was clear. Do you understand what I'm saying? Cigars were not an issue with him because the Holy Spirit had not made it an issue for him. And yet, looking on, Moody couldn't believe. How can you do that? Spurgeon said, how can you do that at the table? Isn't it interesting how somebody else's sin is always is a little nastier than ours? Have you ever noticed that your dirt's cleaner than somebody else's dirt? You ever moved into a, a house that wasn't a new one and maybe a rental property and everything's just like a little for a while because it's somebody else's dirt. And then finally after a while, it's just like your dirt's overlaid their dirt and it's all good because your dirt's cleaner than their dirt. And this is a bit how it works sometimes in this process of sanctification. So the first thing is what I call superimposed sanctification. The second is what I call a supercharged conscience. Now, your conscience is your knower. 
But how many of you know that your feeler, your knower is messed up? Sin is messed it up. And this is not about what feels right because that feeling will often cause you to grab the sixth donut. That's the problem. I feel like another donut, all right? But your feeling's always going to be wrong until it gets yoked to the Spirit. And our feelings, our conscience, what I'm talking about, can be a powerful conduit for knowing God and His will once yielded and yoked to Him. Now, I see believers, and they're so afraid of their feelings. Oh, the feelings. I've got to be suspect of that. I'm not led by my feelings. I'm not asking you to be led by your feelings. But let me just tell you, when you shut that off and you think the only way that God can speak to you is some cerebral kind of thing, and it doesn't touch your heart and doesn't touch your emotions, you're missing a lot of what God's trying to communicate to you. Somewhere we've got to see our feelings, our emotions sanctified that God can use that as a palate to speak to us. That's all I can say about that. i got to move on. But our conscience has to be trained. It has to be spirit-activated and exercised. It's called the conscience. But there's some challenges with the conscience. The first is what I call a seared or defiled conscience. And that's when nothing bothers you. That's a sociopath. And I say that really with no smile. Because there are people out there so sociopathic in their orientation, they have no feeling left. And they say, are you sorry for what you did? No. They can't even touch it because they have a seared conscience. And a seared or a defiled conscience is just one small step away from demonic incursion in your life. This is how it happens, is when we lose feeling, so to speak. First Peter says, live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And you see, this is right here where we're getting some old and new heresy in the church, where it says, some folk are saying, you can't sin. That all sin has been previously atoned for, or there's some kind of disconnect between your body of sin and your person which cannot sin. I mean, it gets weird, but it's an old heresy called Gnosticism that's making a pretty strong recurrence in the church right now. Craig Keener, who is a New Testament theologian, he defines it this way. Gnostics tend to define sin in various ways, hence some Gnostics believed that they were incapable of committing real sins, although their bodies could engage in behavior considered sinful. Now, let me just tell you, this was something that was spoken of it was a heresy that was known in the first century church. It was written, it was spoken to. But it's making a recurrence now through what is known as easy grace. That pretty much God's already atoned for everything, so it makes no difference what I do. It's okay, I'm covered. All right? How many of you know that's just dumb? All right? Besides the fact that it's got demonic origins, but it's just dumb. All right? Sin is sin. Can we just get it right there? Then there's a sensitive or weak conscience where everything bothers you. And we tend to word legalism here. Everything bothers you. So you're going to make a checklist for righteousness in your life. And it not only bothers you, but it bothers others as well because they're not nearly as sensitive as you are. And life becomes a very sad series 
of I can't and you should not. But then there's a spiritual and a functional conscience which works as God intends to lead you away from sin and toward him. This is how, this is how a properly operating conscience works. It leads us away from sin and toward him. Away from sin, toward him. This is how you know that you've got a healthy, functional conscience. Hang on to that definition. It's away from death and toward life. And there's at least a two-part process, and I'll just mention this for the sake of time. We have to both retrain and reactivate the conscience. First of all, we have to retrain it. Because of the sin nature and because of life and because that so much of what is, down, is, is, is being downstreamed to us in these days, it pretty much tells us it's all right. It's okay. See all these folks sleeping together? It's all right. It's understood. You can't, you can't, you can't even pick up a sitcom or a movie that everybody's not shacking up. And it's just assumed that you are going to say, oh, well, sure, that's what happens. This is 2016. We don't even push back on it anymore. But we have to retrain our conscience, regardless of what the media is telling us. Hebrews 5 says, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. That's what this Bible is about. But then Leviticus 10 And speaking to the priest, God speaks here. And a couple of Aaron's boys have just been killed, by the way, by the fire of God. This is kind of a moment. He says, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean, and teach the Israelites all that the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. See, part of our job, I believe, as a New Testament priesthood, which we are, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, Part of our function in that New Testament priesthood, we need to help train people. Are you with me? We need to be putting the right things on the inside of them that says, your thinking is wrong. Your actions are wrong. I love you, but they're wrong. So part of it is we have to, tr- we have to retrain some things. And then we have to activate or reactivate Galatians 5, live by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the sin nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, to another distinguishing between spirits. I believe the Holy Spirit, if we will allow him to do it, he will continue to soften and activate our conscience. Hear me. He will continue to to sensitize us to those things that are not pleasing, not just just are offensive, but are not pleasing to God. And our tastes and our sensitivities should be constantly evolving as a result, as part of a renewed mind and a reactivated conscience. This is what happens. So as we close tonight, Pastor Donnell, join me up here. As we become more consistent in following the Holy Spirit and allow God to properly wire our knower, our feeler, our conscience, let me give you just some questions so that you can self-assess if that's really happening in your life. 
Is the bar higher than it was last year in your life? If you don't know what that means, then you probably need to think about what it means. Are you hitting your head on that bar? Meaning, is that bar bringing you a greater freedom or a greater bondage? Let me just tell you, anything that God establishes as a standard, He, by His Spirit, is going to get you over. If you've established that bar based on your own desire, your own law, your own legalism, you will be continually banging your head on that thing, and you're never going to get over it. Or if someone else places that bar in your life. Three, Are you finding yourself more grieved by sin in yourself or others? Does sin bother you more today than it did a year ago? Are you finding yourself, as a result, loving God, yourself, and others more or less? Are you finding yourself more or less dependent on God for both life and righteousness? And are you spending more time or less time at the cross? See, there's no way that you can have an activated conscience and not spend quite a bit of time at the cross. See, that conscience is that that is the warning light that goes off, that points you to Calvary. That's the place where conviction occurs. That's the spot. This is why it's so important for us to have a healthy, functional, activated, spirit-inspired, spirit-empowered conscience going on on the inside of us. Amen? And an activated conscience makes us ever more aware of our lack and his sufficiency. Paul writing in in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. I was having lunch with a good friend yesterday, and we were just... We were kind of having a moment of a lament together of just, you know what? The longer that I go, the further I realize the gap is. I mean, I'm running as hard as I can to close the gap, but the more I get to see God, the wider I see the gap becomes. Doesn't mean I don't try. It just means I just realize that in my desire to know him better, I realize the only way that I can is through the all-sufficiency of Christ. Amen? Let me pray for you.